Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Hey everybody, welcome to Wired to Hunt episode 426. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson, and today I'm talking to Jeremy Moore about tracking deer with dogs and all of the cool ways that dogs can help you become a better hunter. Hey everybody, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. You might notice that this voice does not sound like Mark Kenyon. That's because I am guest hosting this week, and my name is Tony Peterson. I also do the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, if you want to check that out. But Mark is, I believe he said, down at a yo-yo convention in Akron, Ohio this week. So he needed somebody to fill in. He called me up, said, can you do it? I said, I would be happy to, buddy. So I am doing this week's episode, and I am interviewing a guy named Jeremy Moore. Jeremy's been on here a few times. Uh, Mark's interviewed him. I've interviewed him on my podcast. He's a, he's a really knowledgeable dog trainer who also happens to be a really passionate bow hunter. And so Jeremy trains shed dogs, game recovery dogs, and he bow hunts all fall. And I, I, I wanted to have him on because I have a little puppy at home that I'm I'm going to train to find, hopefully find, uh, wounded deer for my family, my friends, anybody who needs it. Because now more and more states are opening up uh, the the legal option to go find, you know, go recovery deer, recover deer with uh, with blood trailing dogs, or I should say game recovery dogs. You'll hear why we, we shouldn't say the blood tracking thing during this episode. But Jeremy's such a good good source of information. Uh, he knows so much about this. He knows how to train them. He knows how to tie in all of these different aspects of, of deer hunting and the relationship or the at least the parallels between sporting dogs and deer. So we go down a couple rabbit holes on this one, but it's a lot of fun. So I think you're really going to enjoy it. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing really well. How are you doing? It's good, man. It seems like every podcast I get to host, I get to see your face. So I, I'm I'm loving the podcast game. Yeah, and congratulations too. It's exciting to see you you and these guys working together. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it's fun, you know. Other than having to work with Mark and Spencer, it's a blast. So yeah, well, I'm not going to say that. I have always had a nice <laughs> relationship. Everything's went very well with me and Mark. So I've always enjoyed them. No, they're they're great. Uh, 
You, when, when Mark said, I, I need some help with a couple of these episodes, I just thought, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta see if Jeremy wants to do this because you're, you're tied into these two worlds that I love personally, which is sporting dogs. And you know, you're a hardcore white tail bow hunter. You get your family out there. You, you, you hunt a lot of deer and you've kind of mixed these worlds better than just about anyone out there. And you, you do the shed dog thing, the, the game recovery thing, and you're a bow hunter. And I'm like, I, I want to talk to Jeremy because I have a nine-week-old puppy at home who I fully intend to train to find all the deer that we do not hit well. And and so I wanted to I wanted to ask you about that. There, there's a lot of way there's a lot of places I want to go in this podcast, but let's start with that because this this dog of mine and you know me this this dog's a bird dog first, right? It's a family dog. It's a bird dog. I've never done I've done the shed antler thing, but I've never done the game recovery thing. What should I be doing? Well, I think you know I I, I you're right. Like for us, out of necessity. I love, I love working with the dogs so much, but you're right. I do so much deer hunting stuff and deer hunting is really like my, my, if you, if I had to pick one thing to do, it's, I'm not going to give up deer hunting. So by me figuring out ways to include the dogs, it, it's, that's been a, a real benefit, but I think that there's the dogs enhance it. Like the dogs make it better. Um, you know, when you start talking about tracking dogs, game recovery dogs, there's a clear, um, you know, there's a, it's really, it's not hard to understand how they can improve our experience and, um, you know, finding one, finding one deer that otherwise would not have been found is worth, worth everything that you're going to put into it from a work, why or from a work standpoint, um, training standpoint, that satisfaction is, is, you know, it's hard to beat. It's, it's so much that I know I do know, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit, but like some guys are really hardcore into tracking and I, almost all of them that I know at one time were very avid hunters and then they started tracking with their dogs and this was so, so much more enjoyable to them. They enjoyed that. They got a bigger rush out of it. They, everything that was more desirable for them to do the dog stuff that they end up, they don't hunt because there is a fine line and balance of time and, and everything when people really get into it obviously takes a lot of time and the time of year for a tracking dog, it's hard to hunt because there's a relatively short window of time that that's when the tracking dogs are needed. So, um, but yeah, I, I, with you, with a young dog, what, what do you need to get started? I, I, and you had sent me a, a message earlier, by the way, you'll see an email come through shortly, but I sent you a message with some questions that you had sent me for something, another project you're working on and kind of a similar question, you know, what are you gonna get started with a pup? And I hate to be that guy that's beating the dead horse over and over and over. But I always say when it comes to dogs, regardless of what we're doing with them, the foundation has to be there first. So I don't care if it's tracking dog, bird dog, shed dog, name it, whatever you want to do with it in the field without a foundation. And, and when I say foundation, I mean, obedience, like he'll sit, stay, come when I call you. Those are the, the, the big four. If you don't have that, First off, you won't enjoy the dog, whether whether it's in the field or not. And second off, you can't really do this training that I think is necessary to develop those skills without those foundational things. Because it's like a basketball team can't play a game if they don't know how to dribble, and and they can't if they don't know how to shoot. So there's these real basic things that, and and that all has to be there first. So the foundation, 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 and I spend literally 
months and months and months on it. At the same time, I do think there's little things that you can start doing with that pup. How old's your pup right now? So she's nine weeks and we're doing, I mean, she's already sit down, place, come. I'm I'm working on heel with her. So I, I'm working on, you know, it's all treat training stuff, but um, working on all that. I just didn't know if there was anything, any, any little things on this, this blood tracking side of things that I should start thinking about for the near future. Well, yeah, you can. And, and it's just, the thing is, is you don't have to, but you certainly can. And I think what, what the slippery slope is, is when we start giving a list of here's what you should do type stuff, everybody takes it so, so literally that they, they focus on that. And, and what I, what I emphasize with young dogs is let them develop as they develop. Like we don't, we can help, we can help them along the way, but I don't think we should be steering them too hard when they're little, because I think that the, the, the thing that'll make a lot of people maybe relax a little bit about the idea of developing dogs for the field is that the, the hard work has been done by people for hundreds of years before us. So we, we don't have to worry about like fitting the round peg into the square hole. Like these, these dogs and it's, and it doesn't matter what breed, like we can, we'll probably talk some breed stuff too, but the, the, these dogs have the ability to find game in them and, and we don't have to put it in. So we don't train them to track it. Just like I don't train retrievers to retrieve and we don't train pointing dogs to point. Like they have it in them. And, but not all of them come out at the same time either. So yes, there's stuff I want to like expose it to, to give it an opportunity to develop, maybe come out a little quicker. You know, it's, he brought up treat training and I, I, not to go off on a tangent, but like treat training to me is makes trainers feel really good. I don't treat train and I'm not against treat training. I also don't use shock collars and I'm not against shock collars. I just don't use them and I don't use them because I don't feel like I need them. And I don't think they help me. And I think they put me in a, I think they put a lot of people in situations that aren't the best for themselves and the dogs. The idea of treat training, I think, is really an accelerated way of getting little dogs to shape into things behavior-wise that we like to see. I'm not against that. Like, I, I don't have a problem with it. What I think is, what I think, it, like, I look at it and I go, I like to shape dogs in good into desirable behaviors as well but i feel like that happens if you if you're consistent and you lead them down a good path it will happen what i don't like is trying to speed stuff up to get ahead because there's no i just don't think you get ahead with dogs i think you get ahead and then you find yourself in a bad position and i think that a lot of times the the treat training i've seen some incredible treat training videos where where people are having these nine week old puppies like yours healing off lead and i go everybody goes man they, they taught that dog to heal off lead already and i said yeah but no they're not healing them off lead they're guiding them with a piece of kibble in, the, in their hand and that kind of but what i look at it is is at the end when you take the kibble if you took the kibble away does the behavior stay and i don't think it does as well i like to look at it as I take a different approach to shaping. It takes a little more time, uh, admittedly, but it, I, I, I don't care what the score is at the end of the first quarter. It's the end of the game that matters. So like to be six weeks ahead of where I am today looks good, but let's talk in six months or six years and see how, how 
did that time, how, how did things go along that time frame? Because it's in the end that really matters. So when it comes to these little dogs, I, you know, kibble is great. I like food, um, especially with food driven dogs. So for tracking or for birds or for sheds or for anything that uses nose work, I like to use, I like to use food. I think it, you can use it to your advantage. And so I would take, you know, grass, go outside and get your front lawn and cut a, cut a circle. Maybe you'll do it in the backyard, but mow, mow it so that there's a little bit taller grass in a relatively small area and take that bowl of food that you normally were going to feed that pup. You know, by nine weeks, you're on, you're on, you're on solid. Like I've got puppies in the back right now. They're four weeks. They got their first solid meal today. It's mush. It's not, not hard kibble, but eventually within a couple of weeks, they're going to be eating dry kibble. And so you could take that kibble and you could put it in the grass. So you mowed a circle, let's say you mowed a circle about six or seven feet in diameter, not real big, but for that dog, it's pretty, pretty good sized distance. And the, the height doesn't have to be real tall grass. It just needs to be, you know, two or three inches taller than everything around it. And so it's a clear like island of taller grass and sprinkle some food in there, kibble, a handful of it, and then take the dog and let it go downwind. And then don't, I don't have to say anything. Just, just be downwind of it and watch that puppy use its nose and work into that cover and then watch its body language. So watch its tail, watch its, watch how it breathes. It, it goes from maybe panting through its mouth to all of a sudden its mouth is closed and you start to hear that little Hoover vacuum. <laughs> and now all of a sudden they're working that nose and that tail starts to change the cadence. And I, I like using that to A, get the puppy to understand if I use my nose, there's really good things that happen. It's the exact same thing that happened the day the puppy was born. When, when I watch these pups behind me that are four weeks old right now, when they were born, within four or five hours, they were literally scooching themselves across the whelping pen to get over by mom if she had adjusted. They can't see and they can't hear, and but they could smell. And so they literally made their way across this gigantic whelping box to them and got there. And why did they get there? Because they were hungry and they wanted to get warm and they curled up by mom and they nursed. So they've been doing it since literally the hours, that first hours they were alive. Now we're just like adding distractions. We're adding some things. Their dogs have become mobile. So now they can run around a little bit, and cover some ground. But those are things that I think you can do that enhance that dog's understanding of use my nose, get some reward. But I think also you're going to gain you're going to start to feel just as good about watching your dog do that. I think a lot of this early stuff on is like keeping us excited about it and keep making us feel good. You'll be able to start reading the dog's body language and going, man, my dog really says a lot by just physically making changes with its body and how it works. So you could configure different, you know, you could configure, I use that, I call that a hunt command. So like I put that food in there and I let them find it. And in the background, a lot of times with my dogs, I give them a verbal cue. You know, I, you can say lost, you can say find it, you can say whatever you want to say. But I, I stand in the back after the first day or two and I start to read that language, just, just watching them do what they do naturally. And then I start layering in some verbal over the top of it. So you can start find it, find it, find it, find it, find it. And that doesn't mean anything to them at that point, but they hear it because they can hear and they're, you're in the background just saying it over and over and over again. And every time you say it, they're in that area. They're in that tall grass. Their noses are working, their tails are going, and they're getting rewards. And that reward is that kibble. And so you do that enough, and it's, it's, it's classic conditioning. It's Pavlov. So 
you, you do it enough and all of a sudden I can sit here in the living room and I've got a couple of dogs laying on the beds right now. And if I go find it, find it, find it, find it, I'll look in their noses, even in their sleep, their noses will start to move. Their noses will start to get driplets of water on it because they hear that and their body tells them I have to use my nose and something good will come from it. So, yeah. so hold on a second. Is that, is, is that find it command or do, is that like a generic thing? Like, like fetch would be for some people or are you, are you tying that specifically to later blood trailing efforts? So for tra- so so this is early on just to develop what I call hunt command. I wouldn't use find it, find it, find it, find it the whole time while we're tracking because it's too much verbal and there's really no reason. Yep. So I, what I would do is I might use find it to start. Like I might use find it to engage the dog in the idea of there's something here for me to find. And then when they, as soon as they're on it, I shut up. Like I, I, I think one of the biggest things that we do, and I'm guilty of it, and I can be accused of very easily, and I will, and I will agree with it, is, well, you talk an awful lot when you're training. On video, yes. But I'm not talking to the dog. I'm talking to the camera. And so I, I make a point of, like, our YouTube channel is filled with all sorts of different videos. And I, I oftentimes remind people of, hey, I – I'm going to talk. It's going to actually make my training a lot harder and we're going to get a lot less done than I, than I think we could if we weren't so verbal because I think it becomes white noise to the dog. So when I actually do have to give them something verbally, they, it doesn't have the impact because I'm so constantly talking. So that's, that's like, that's a give and take where you, I could go and just film it and you could, and, and, the guys could follow me around with the camera and I could say nothing. And then the viewer would have to guess like, I wonder why he did that. I don't think that that's as valuable for YouTube as it is for me with a session with the dog. So those, they look a little bit different. Um, I had a guy that we had a workshop this weekend and we had people from all across the country here. And one of the, one of the biggest things that stood out to me, one guy, you know, a little German short haired pointer, um, I encourage people to be encouraging to their dogs. I think we get in a rut. This is a general dog training thing, but I think we get in a rut where we, we pick apart all the bad things. We, we correct, we correct, we get really good at correcting and that's fine. You need to correct things. It's pressure and praise. I think that's how they learn, but you have to make, be really good at the corrections, sharp timing. You have to, you have to acknowledge and, and re- have reflexes. Well, this guy, most people are really good at the corrections. They're not so good at reminding the dog when they do it well. So I always am talking to people and saying, how many goods did you say there? How many times did you tell the dog good? Because you corrected it four times, but 10 times it was in perfect position and I didn't hear anything. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I got to remember to say good. Well, this guy, he talked, he just talked and talked and talked constantly. Good, 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 good. Constantly. And he never left any silence. And I told him, I said, man, I love your enthusiasm, I, I, but you're the opposite of everybody else. You need to just throttle back and save it for when it, when it really matters. Because when you really need to give, and his dog was really little. He had like a 12-week-old pup. So I said, when your dog really does something well, you need that dog to understand it. And if you're constantly talking to it, and then the verbal is the way you praise it, they're not going to know the difference between that and the rest of the jibber jabber that they hear from you. So you got to, you have to balance that a little bit, but when we're tracking, I'm sh- I shut up. Mm-hmm. I'll say, Hey, I, my job is to focus on that dog and understand based on its body language, how are we doing? And you know, if the dog gets off, 
and, and you can tell that the dog is off of the line, I might, I might help the dog because this isn't a test. This is a training thing. We're working together. I might help the dog by reengaging them with that find it command. Find it. Find it. Good. Good. And then shut up. It's, and when I say good, envision that dog going, change in body language. Oh, got the scent. Now I'm quiet. And I let the dog work. Yeah. Is this... Are are you seeing more interest here now? You know, I mean, it, people who know the history of the European game recovery dogs. I mean, that, it, that's like just ensconced in that dog culture over there. Like, there's there's no, you know, we think about dogs in in different categories, like house dogs and you know, hunting dogs, and the, this kind of new category of game recovery dogs. But really, over there, there's they they don't differentiate. And now, more and more states are legalizing you know, blood trailing on a leash or off leash or 30 foot check cord or whatever. Are you seeing more interest come up with that? Or are you having more just like general sporting dog owners that are interested in it? Yeah, for sure. I think it, I think it, it's great that they are because I think it's, it saves more game. I think more game gets found now than it ever has before because of the dogs. And that, that really is 100% the reasoning and the objective is get, find, find game that otherwise wouldn't be found. And, but, but when you, when I think about that question, I think yes, in big, when it comes to big game, but I, I will remind, like, there's a lot of people that are intimidated by the idea of, you know, dabbling in tracking or, you know, big game recovery with a dog, any dog does, I don't care the breed. I don't care if it's a crossover, like you're going to do multiple things with the dog, but I, I want to remind anyone who's got that, that doubt in their mind or that second guessing. Game recovery, you're right. You're, the Europeans look at it completely different than we do over here, but not really because we all understand over here in the States, we all understand the value of a dog to recover game. It's just not big game. Yeah. Like a pheasant dog has the most value a pheasant dog brings to me is get cripples. Like if I wing a bird and it sails and it hits the ground and it's running, I will never get it by myself. And very rarely are you going to be able to catch back up to it, not in cover and be able to find it and, and get the game, recover it where that's what the dog does. I, the, the greatest retrieve of, of my memory uh, with any dog of my whole life was my first Labrador retriever. And it was a duck that we shot and it sailed way. It was in the Dakotas. It sailed way across this pothole. We were hunting over water. It hit the water. It swam to the shore. It went up. We saw it cross a road. And we're like, I mean, it was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yards away. And we're like, there's no way. We're, we're never going to find that duck. So we got done. We picked up. And I said, I'm just going to take Remy over there. And I brought, we walked way over there. She got on that line. This is hours later. And she went up and she crossed that road. And we literally just sat there and waited so long that the trucks came around and we're, we're sitting there. We're sitting there. We watched her work a chiseled field, chiseled plow field. She went into a CRP and all of a sudden she came back long time later, I mean, 10, 15 minutes later with a live Drake Mallard in her mouth and she brought it back to us. And so I, I, I look at that and I go, that's a tracking job. That's all that was, was a tracking job. And so there's not a lot of difference between tracking a bird or tracking a rabbit or tracking a deer it's just our our perception of it as hunters over here is oh that's that's so much different it's not yeah 
you know, look at hounds. Look at what hounds. Look at what we how we hunt with hounds over here. It, yeah, it's it's more of a it's a skill. You kind of alluded to this earlier that that they have, and this is sort of a bolt on task. Like this is you know for a while there, and you saw this. People were getting like dedicated shed dogs, you know, or, sure. or dedicate yep. you know, and the, and the guys you're talking about who are who are just blood tracking now. They're not doing. They're not hunting anymore. That's just their thing. They're yep. looking for a specific kind of dog. But this is something that you can take you know, all kinds of different working dogs out there, probably dogs that we don't even think of as working dogs. And they, they have thousands and thousands of years of evolution of, of, right. of this. This is already built into them. We just need to give them the opportunity to develop it a little bit and have that framework of control around it. Like you talked about earlier. Yeah. I think when you think about like the original tracking dogs, the best tracking dogs, uh, you think of like the ones that depend on it to survive wolves coyotes like they're they're really good tracking dogs and they 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 become it because if they aren't they'll die like they don't they don't survive and you know the 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 idea and the understanding like i i truly believe that one of the biggest values a tracking dog brings to me is a much clearer understanding of what actually happened when it comes to let's let's say a scenario is somebody hits a deer um archery uh, is is a the biggest one that I see, but let's say it's arch, you know, it's archery hunt. Somebody hits the deer, knew they hit it well. They always know they hit it well, and then you go to the scene. Well, you start to look at it. I I've seen it so many times. Now this this is only after a lot of experience, but with dogs, with like an experienced dog, I I can't tell you how many countless times that I've seen these really well trained dogs that have seen and been on lots of tracks, literally within a hundred yards of it, I can look and I don't, I don't think this deer is dead. And it's always discouraging to the hunter. And they're always, no, no, no. You know, they, they know, they know. Well, how, how many times, I can't tell you how many times that the hunter knew where the deer went and the dog said it went somewhere else. And no, no, it's this way. The dog says it's this way. No, it's this way. The dog says, it. all of a sudden, here's the deer. How did it get over there? You know, well, I don't know how, and I'm not saying that the people are lying about it. I don't think it's intentional, but a lot of things happen in the woods and you get confused and you get excited and you see something that you thought you saw. And the dogs are the honest part in this puzzle. You know, like they, they really tell us the truth all the time. And, and, you know, I've been on tracks where I, I know it's very, very unlikely that we're going to recover this deer. And they can tell us that pretty quickly. And I think it's because, and it's through body language, but I think that it has a lot to do with the idea of when you think back to like, as these animals evolve, if they're bad trackers, as far as they track and they're not, they're not tracking a deer that's going to eventually expire or is hurt so bad that they could catch up to it. If they just chase the, the, you know, chase to chase, they burn more calories than they ever take in. And if you do that, you don't make it. So they're, they're just, the depth of them is, is amazing. And, and, and that all takes a lot of, um, you know, that takes a lot of experience for the dog. It takes a lot of experience for the handler to be able to read the dog. Uh, and the, and the, the other sign, like, I don't think, I think great trackers, like tra tracking dogs, really good tracking dogs are not just, independent units they're always teamed up with a really good tracker trackers tr trackers and tracking dogs it's not coincidental that they're always together um 
there's there's a there's a lot of input from the handler and there's a lot of understanding that you got to trust the dog at times and and it's a it's very much a team um and that t- and and the the more they do the better they get uh there's it's just like anything else but i also think you know so i say all that stuff and i go and i i know that will intimidate people and go well, i don't I'm, i i can't do that i'm not that guy i'll i'll the whole one of the first stories I heard about tracking success was I was in college and a roommate of mine had a golden retriever that his buddy shot a deer and they couldn't find it. My buddy took his dog with to go look for it. They weren't taking it to track and no training. I mean, zero training. And they brought the dog with and they went to look for where the deer was and the dog ran off. Like, I mean, with conviction like he, he he went he looked like he was going there somewhere for a reason and so my buddy followed his dog and the guy that shot the deer kept looking for some type of sign some type of visual clue and it didn't go very far and here that here he follows this dog and here the dog is right next to that dead deer and so he's like i couldn't believe it but so no training no experience no extra effort put in and that dog did it like an old pro. So I, I don't think I don't share that story with everyone to be like, don't work at it, just take your dog, it'll happen. But I also think there's it's for most of us, it's somewhere we're somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Well this that's just an example. You know, we should we should comment on this or, or talk about this a little bit, but you know, we say blood tracking dogs, but they're they're following the scent of a wounded animal. Like there yeah. there's a lot more to it than that. And so people kind of think like, oh, they're, they're finding a spot of blood and then they're sniffing for the next one. That's not how it works there. You know, when you think about you talk about that rooster, you knock down that goes running or the, you know, the, that, that might be the best scenario because you think about being in a place with tons of pheasant sign, you knock sure. a rooster down, that dog knows which scent to follow to track that sucker down. And it's not because he's blood trailing a rooster going 400 miles an hour. You know I mean? They, right. they know the smell of a, so th- this is like inherent in them. And so it's about us just giving them those opportunities and then having the ability to reset them and control them in these situations until they just go, Oh, this is, this is what I'm doing. Like, okay, I can do this. Yeah. I, yeah, for sure. The, the, you know, you're right. The blood tracking part of it. I say I, I, for a long time, I got away from saying blood tracking because I was trying to make a point of like, they're not tracking blood. Like if there was blood, we wouldn't need them. It's the idea that there isn't blood. And, and there's, it's, it's usually not that there isn't any blood because oftentimes there is some type of a clue, but there's so much more than just blood. And, and yes, it's specific to following, you know, the, I think one of the biggest asked questions, the biggest fear that people have is if I train my dog to track deer, they'll, they'll run deer. And it couldn't be further from the truth. The, the idea of a dog that runs deer. Now, will dogs run deer? For sure untrained dogs run deer like it's a you i I always say to people like if your pheasant dog jumps a deer while you're pheasant hunting and chases it do you have a bad pheasant dog no you don't have a problem it's not a pheasant problem it's a control problem with a pheasant dog so if the deer if the dog is chasing deer it's an issue with control and so tracking dogs don't just follow deer they follow a specific deer and that's made up of all sorts of different clues. Um, you know, there's, uh, we can go down into, there's a ton of it. There's, 
there's adrenaline that comes off of a wounded deer that has a very, you know, I take my dog to the vet and I black, black Labrador. So bring them to the vet and I get there and I'm always embarrassed because God, they do not take care of these dogs. They got all this dandruff, you know, like they flake. I get them up on the table to get inspected and black dog with all this white dander. And I go, geez, man, he's never, never like that at home. He's got a nice coat. I thought, and the, and the vet says, no, he's nervous. What do you mean he's nervous? Oh, he's nervous. So when he's nervous, he exfoliates. And so when you exfoliate, skin cells come off, dander comes off. Well, I learned from a, a canine trainer um, that, I, that I probably picked up more like understanding of how dogs process scent that from than anyone else. And, and he was in New York City. I met him at an ATA show, archery trade show. But so we, we were talking and he was training dogs to track criminals or, or people, individual people through the streets of New York. And where I'm, ex he's explaining to me this process, and he goes, "Yeah, you, a criminal has an adrenaline rush when that when they're being chased. You, I mean, you ever you ever get afraid of something and run? Like it's a weird feeling that overcomes your entire body, and that creates scent. When you're nervous, you start to exfoliate. Dander happens. Well, that scent, those are all scent clues, and that you're leaving this mist down the road and through the building and wherever you're going." which are settling down and then the dog utilizes that as a scent clue. So, you, you know, you, you step in something and then you run for a distance, you're going to carry that scent. That's a scent clue for that dog. And it's associated with a specific person, not just people. So a deer is the same way. A deer has an interdigital gland in between their, their hoof. It's unique to them. It's a lot. It, it literally is like a fingerprint. And so that has a unique scent and that specific interdigital gland Combined with all these other scent clues, that dog puts all that in its memory and goes, if I smell one of these 500 different scent clues, it's this deer. And, oh, I crossed another deer, but that does not have this one. And it needs to have this in order for it to be that. So I have to follow. So I leave that one alone and I follow this one. And the thing is, is as we talk about it, we're kind of like trying, I'm trying to like draw this picture of how this dog is processing it. Well, it happened like that. Like, I mean, it's the fastest computer in the world yeah. is the way your nose works. So really amazing. Yeah, it is. I, I interviewed a, a canine uh, researcher from Texas tech one time for, for sporting dog talk. And he, he focuses on their olfactory abilities and he's studying how good are their noses really. And he described it to me as them being able to smell three drops of something in an Olympic size pool. Yeah. That's how, yeah. and I always think about this with deer when people are like, Oh, I put on this suit and I beat the deer's nose. And I'm like, you know, when you, I can't remember, I think a dog is like 320 million scent receptors and a deer is 370 or something. It's wild, wild sure. numbers. And then you think about how they can, they can key in on those biochemical little, little clues on yeah. somebody running through New York or, you know, that deer that has a certain kind of wound or something like that. And they can follow that through a billion different other scents and they can filter that through while running. It's, it's like amazing. I mean, it's so yeah. incredible that they can do that. It's hard to, and it is hard to wrap, wrap your mind around it. I think sometimes the belief comes in witnessing it, you know, like you, you, you watch, you know, there's all these examples, but like there's at the border that I've heard about that where this, this drug dog picked up dope that was coming through and it was encased in concrete. Like it was, it was a, it was drugs inside of a concrete pillar and the dog was able to pick that up. 
So when you hear, I mean, if that's the case, we're not fooling these dogs' noses with, with our, you know, we're not, I don't have to be too worried about like, you know, the, a big one for shed hunting is wear rubber gloves. And I laugh at it and I go, are you kidding me? That's the thing you think is holding your dog up in training. Cause you're not wearing a pair of rubber gloves. Like it's insulting to the dogs. So their noses are just, we, I don't think we will understand exactly how to be able to put it into measure. But I mean, when you bring up deer stuff and in scent suits and all that stuff, here's one that I, here's one that I did give a bit of credibility to is I read a, a, a article about they had a drug dog or a canine unit dog. It was a, I think it was a man tracker, but they had a, a test where they had, I think it was nine boxes in a room um, box big enough to cover up a person. And they put people in the box and they let the dog in the room and the dog has to find the box that the person is in and indicate. So they did it with nothing. Like just put a person in the room and it happened in like, it happened in a matter of like less than a few seconds. Dog went right to the box. Boom. Got it. So they, then they put the dog, they sprayed the person down with like a scent killer type thing and dog went right to the box. You know, it maybe was like a split second longer, but it went right to the box. They put a carbon suit on the person or some type of one of those suits and just a hint more, just yep. a touch more, um, longer to find. And then they put an ozone unit in. Yep. And when they put the ozone unit in, it took about four or five times as long for the dog. It was like 15 to 20 seconds versus three to five. And the dog went to it and found them. But it took a while. Yeah. And I thought, and, and, and so a lot of people will read that and go, yeah, it doesn't work. The dog found them. Of course they found them. It's not, the dog is, well, it's not going to fool them. In that test, they shut the ozone unit off too. So when he, I've, I've messed around with, with trying to fool dogs a million different ways, that was a, that was a field and stream test they did. And yeah. if you know about ozone, like it's, it's a bleaching agent. It's an unstable molecule that binds to biological molecules. And it, it was the only thing I found when I was training Luna, my, my older lab now for shed antlers where I could treat an antler and treat my gloves. And then I could throw that, antler out there and leave it and i could see that that dog would run downwind of it and not pick it up right away i tried spraying it down every other way because you know how it is like if you handle it with your hand they're going to smell there's all kinds of scent on it right sure. so you throw that antler out they get downwind of it in the grass they they know they're just on it turn on a dime and i thought is there you know there has to be a way to try to do this where there's not i'm not introducing all these extra smells and this hand smell the only thing i found that worked was ozone sure and I, I, with that study, I look at it and I go for a deer hunter, like if it gives me a couple extra seconds, if it gives me 15 seconds versus three, there's value there. Cause if it's the right deer, I can kill them, yeah. you know? And so I, but I just, I, I think that understanding the, the, the power of that nose, it, it's hard for us probably to wrap our mind around, but it, when you, when, so I, and, and so we get in, we get off on these, in these directional talking about this, but what it comes down to is think about it. A gut shot deer runs through the woods. Like, is that, that challenging for our dog? Probably not. What, and it's not so much the, it's not so much the tracking itself of the deer. I think what really creates the biggest issues are conditions, scent conditions. And I think it's overlooked because 
the the easiest track job in the world is very challenging if the dog's not capable of processing the scent because of outside influence, which can be temperature, can be barometric pressure, it can be moisture, it can be it can be the heat, but not so much the heat on the scent, but how it affects the dog and how it affects the dog's ability to breathe because the dog has to breathe through its nose in order to process scent. So it, we worked this weekend at this workshop and it was terribly warm. I mean, it was 90 in the nineties and we did a hunt command drill. And I said, you know, we got to be realistic with these dogs, not only because from a safety factor, but also from a, like, let's, let's recognize some of the things we do are going to be maybe not that challenging on a normal day. They're extremely challenging today because not only are we asking the dog to process scent with its nose and find stuff, we're asking them to be comfortable in 95 degree weather in the sun when they're, when it's June and they're probably not in their best shape of the year. And so if you can, if you're having a hard time and I, and I, I, I think it's a real good, thing to put yourself in the dog's shoes occasionally because i said to a few people you know that get frustrated i've said this over the years when people get frustrated with their dogs not doing well in tough conditions i tell them well why don't you run a couple laps down and back and then i'm going to see if you can talk carry on a good conversation with me because they can't even they can't even say their name because they're just huffing and puffing i say now you know what it feels like to be your dog to have to go try to do something that completely relies on using your nose when you're having a hard time catching your breath to begin with. So I think we have to keep all that stuff in, in, you know, in the back of our minds. Well, yeah. And you have to, you have to look at this when you get certain challenging conditions, like the extreme heat that we've had lately, a lot of times you don't get any wind either. Right. You know, you get those just dead days and, you know, Mark and I just did, did some stuff on this as far as like deer studies with, uh, with, you know, a lot of hunters think that the deer movement, you know, really, really falls off the cliff when the wind's blowing hard and they've studied that and it's just not true. It's the opposite, you know, and it, the worst times to hunt for buck movement are when there's no, there's no wind whatsoever. And if you like, it's, it's making a leap, but I don't think it's a big one to say it's probably because you're taking their nose out of the game and they don't like that. Yeah. Sure. Know? Sure. And so, yeah. you, I mean, it's so much of that stuff. I, I think, you know, this is why I want to have you on here. I, I, I think it's so cool how many, how much dogs can teach you about, deer you know even if it, even if you have to do make those little leaps it's just like there there's so many things that are similar about them yeah and when you start thinking about you know the the beauty of the dog for tracking purposes is that it's there's a lot of levels to it one of them is a completeness to it like if you wound if you wound a deer first off, all deer don't die when you shoot them i mean i i, I think some people have a hard time believing that you know they don't, they're, they're the toughest, they're the toughest damn animals out. I mean, they're just so, they're will to live and, and they're, they're just sheer toughness is, is hard to wrap around our, you know, our little brains. And, you know, I, I, I think it's funny when you think about like, God, some of the, some of the injuries I see bucks come out of during the rut. And I go, if, if that happened to me, I'd lay down and hope and wish I died, you know, like, it, I don't know that I, and then you think now then they're going to go run up and down hills and and continue to chase and not eat and not i mean the, the the stuff that their bodies are capable of doing is is really remarkable and we we don't we have to understand that just because we put a hit on the deer there there are, are 
there are ch- percentage chances that it's not dead. It's not, it's not going to be a mortal wound. Yeah. And so the best tracking dog in the world won't find a deer that doesn't die. And, and we have to ex- accept that, which, which sometimes is a struggle. But the beauty of the tracking dog is, for me, it's a peace of mind. It's an understanding that, look, I probably did. If you, if you brought in a tracking dog from somewhere else or you used your own tracking dog, I think there's a sense of comfort in knowing, I think you did just about everything you could from a moral standpoint, from an ethical standpoint, to do, to recover that, to recover, recover that animal. And I, I know how deer hunters are. I'm like that. I've lost sleep at night. I've lost sleep at night with deer that I haven't shot at, much less those that I have shot. And, and, and I've lost deer over the years. And if you haven't, God bless you. Uh, it don't (laughs) criticize. Yeah. Don't criticize. And I, you know, I just, I think that's easy for us to do in it. And I think you hunt long enough, you go through it. It's, it's, it's the hardest part. It's one of the hardest parts of being a hunter. Um, but it happens and and the dog allowing me to understand a, I don't think it's dead. B, if it is, I did everything I could to try to find it. And there is a sense, I think of satisfaction when it comes to that. Yeah. Well, you bring up a good point there that I think you, you can't talk about enough, which when it, when it comes to deer hunting and specifically shooting deer, like the, the thing that's most dangerous is what you think, you know, like, I know I hit him right here. Ask yeah. any guide out there, right? Like I hit him right behind the shoulder, perfect shot. And then all of a sudden you can't find him. And it's like, it didn't work that way. And that's right. why that those situations when you're like, man, I know that I saw the arrow hit here and he reacted this way when you find them and get to actually see what happened. Or like you said, you get that dog on that track and that dog's just not interested. And it's a seasoned seven-year-old dog. It's done, been there, done that. You go, okay, something different happened. That, that is kind of one of those weird experiential things that over time makes you a way better hunter because you just realize like, man, I get this stuff wrong a lot. For sure. And, and, and accepting it, realizing that and being okay with that, that's a big, that's a big step. Um, and, and it's a life step, you know, accepting the fact that you're not always right and, and being okay with it and learning from it is real important. The, the biggest, I think one of the, uh, a tracking dog and a tracker's best friend is a trail camera because they, the deer that you knew, you know, are dead when they show back up late season when they show back up next year when they show back up you know somewhere down the road and you go oh my god that deer's still alive that is that ask any you know serious tracker that tracks for other people like i don't track i don't go on tracks i don't i'm not a tracker i don't go on tracks for other people because i i literally don't have time to do it i'm i'm i track for myself i track for my family close friends um just because of available time, but I have a lot of friends that are, you know, really serious trackers and there, there is a, even when their dog tells them it's not dead, there is always that, you know, Oh man, I just, you know, I don't want to disappoint. You don't want to be disappointing to, to, to people. And when you go and you, you look, you don't find it to get that email, to get a text message with the picture. 
you know, that's a real comforting feeling. It's a real reassuring feeling. It's a confidence builder for you and your dog. Occasionally, you're going to get that picture that says, you know, we found it. And that that's okay, too, because at that point, you, the biggest question, you have, well, where was it? And what what can what was the hit? How can and you start to look at it because you know the a lot of times what ends up happening is, and I'm not a numbers guy. I could care less about recovery percentages. And there are some statisticians out there that you know they're they're trackers or they're shed hunters or they're whatever, and they measure everything by numbers. And I just I don't like that. I, I I'm not really interested in stats, but um, the the idea of successful recoveries. You know, sometimes we we find out that you know we couldn't find it, and so now now I got to now I got to have a track that has no recovery, and the deer might be dead, the deer might die anyway, but what ends up happening is deer goes off off the property that you have the ability to, sh- to look for and crosses a fence, and you can't go over there, and and you can't get permission, and that a lot of times that's how it happens, you know, and so all these things can come up. And it's, it's a shame, but it's reality. And it's the part that, you know, without the dog, I feel like we would feel we, I would feel like we, we haven't given it everything we need to give it to, you know, with the, with, with the effort from an effort standpoint. So yeah, it's the reality. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's important to say too, that, you know, they're not foolproof either. I mean, there's, there are situations with a dog, like you said, with the conditions or just some, some anomalies that show up. I mean, I, I talked to you about this, but my daughter shot a doe in Northern Wisconsin last year with a crossbow and it, it was keyed up you know, those things are loud. It was a weird deal. And it, it looked to me like a good hit, but it was fast. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so I was like, I don't know. And you know, if they don't go down in sight, then I'm like, okay, well yeah. now we don't know. And yeah. we ended up having some rain come in that night and we had a giant bear and i know this because i saw the deer spook and then i checked a trail camera and we had a a bear get on that trail and so the next day i found a blood tracking guy to come in and he brought his he had draught draught and he came in and couldn't find it and couldn't get on it and never really get the dog excited about it and it was one of those things that i don't know I don't know if that was because that deer made it and it was just not that great of a hit. I, re- I really don't know. Or something with that bear screwed it up or bumped it in a weird sure. way. It's just, it was like a good reminder that you think, okay, well, this is going to be the ticket. And like, it, it's way better than not doing that, but it's not a guarantee. Yeah. I mean, dogs have bad days too. You know, like I, I, I've worked in, in this, this is something that as a trainer, you'll get, you'll get it too. And the more you do it, the more you'll understand it because you'll see it. But you know, I've, there've been times where I go, there's no reason why my dog couldn't find that, that I just can't figure out why. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if maybe they have a headache, maybe they're dehydrated. Maybe there's something that's going on inside their body that is they're struggling, but they're, they're probably way more consistent than I am when it comes to that kind of stuff. But there are things that happen that we don't recognize or realize when scenting conditions. That's why I say some of the biggest overlooked things are the conditions, I think. Um, you know, there are dogs that will find that will track no problem 48 hours later, 72 hours later. They'll, they'll get on a track and go and they'll nail it. And then there are dogs you can put on 12 hours later that 
struggle, struggle, struggle to get on the track. And it, it, that's a clear indicator of like the conditions that 72 hour a day was perfect and it made everything was in place. And, you know, the 12 hour one might've been the, the toughest, hardest conditions. And it just doesn't matter the, t- the, the if you can't smell it, you can't smell it. Yep. And, and that it, it becomes, it create, it can create, those conditions can cr- create more issues for a dog than anything. You know, and the, and, the, and the reality is too, when you start tracking these deer, we, we bump, we screw it up ourselves for trackers more often than not by tracking too quickly. And I think that's natural. You know, like when I was growing up without even thinking about using dogs, my family's and and it comes from my grandpa and my dad. And we thought you just get after it, get after that deer and go. Well, a lot of times I think that gut shot deer are going to die. They're going to die, but they could, it could take them a long time. Like it could take a day or two. And so if they're not pushed, they're not in a hurry to go for a run. Like they, they're, they're going to hunker down. Every time you bump a deer, your chances of recovering them are that much less because you just put a whole nother boost of energy into that deer. You just put a whole nother shot of adrenaline into them. You just put all these, now all of a sudden that deer pushes a little bit further and he crosses some type of a barrier that makes it that much more challenging where if we had just, it's, it's really tough, but the hard part is sometimes deciding to say, let's not go after it yet. Let's wait. And that, that at times is more often it's the way to do it. You know, when in doubt back out is that saying. And I, I think there's a lot to it, whether you're a dog or whether you're going with a dog or not. The other thing is, is hell, half the people that call for a dog call after they can't find it. And they brought every guy in camp and grid searched every property that they had and, and every neighboring property. And then you bring a dog in and you say, here, sort that out. And that's really challenging. And yeah. I don't know if that's fair to, to say that, you know, um, it, it's mistakes that we make. And then we, we like to, well, that dog's not, that dog's no good. Well, no, it's not that it's, we didn't handle it properly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you see that with dogs. You, you see the people who know dogs really well, giving the dogs every chance to do what they do without interfering. Like you said, without yeah. yelling, without moving too fast, with, with, you know, respect to the wind and how that's working and the conditions and everything. There's a, there's a lot that's going on there. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients and as often is the case those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. 
And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Let's switch gears a second here. I want to talk to you about something else. You know, I know you're a... Uh... You know, you're big, you're big into the shed dog world. That's, that, that, that's been covered a lot that I was thinking about this, um, and, and how to like tie dogs into the whitetail world. And man, one of the things that my dogs teach me and, you know, doing this job, like you're, you're pretty tied up in a tree stand until I, at least for me, mid November. And then I switch over and I do a lot of late season grouse and a lot of late season pheasant hunting. And I'll tell you what. Those pheasants take, or those dogs take me into places where pheasants live right after the gun season ends here in Minnesota. And the amount of freaking deer that we jump in those places that sit so tight is incredible. Like really quality bucks on public land in the immediate days after gun season. And I just, it's always such an aha moment to me when that, when that happens. Yeah. And I think, you can that for sure but also when it comes to tracking like tracking dogs give you a real education because when you don't know where the deer went and you're following it with a dog and there's no visual sign but you're getting you're getting some confirmation where you're finding a wound bed or you're finding a a little bit of a a, some hair or you're finding some type of sign to to confirm you're on the right track you start to learn really quickly that deer do some pretty patternable things when they're wounded and like Deer will go to certain areas and, and, you know, the, everybody knows they go to water, you know, wounded deer is going to go to water. That That's true in a lot of scenarios, but they'll, I've also heard people tell me a, a mortally wounded deer won't go uphill. Well, I hunt in the buff, I hunt in the bluff country and I've tracked a hell of a lot of deer up to the top of the hill and found them dead. Yep. So if we, with, you know, following a dog. So if we don't, I think the one thing about deer is, they'll we'll never know everything about them and they'll never cease to amaze us or surprise us and so you know i shed hunted quite a bit this spring and shed hunting led me into areas that i thought were great grouse covers because i love grouse hunting and i'm like oh god i'm in this grouse. i'm in this these popple slashings and i'm going man this is this is good grouse cover and i realized i wasn't flushing any grouse in there when i was shed hunting i was flushing the grouse up on the edges and the prickly ash on the edges of the fields for whatever reason that's where they were when they were drumming in there and i think that prickly ash serves as kind of like a, a shield from birds of prey so i was like god this is kind of interesting well then i go out on that point and i find this little isolated bed on the end of the point 
and there's a shed from five, six years ago that's green and laying underneath a log. And I'm like, a buck lays here, you know, and this, and then I sit there and I look and I go, look at his view. Look at that Northwest wind that's in his face. Look at all these different things that make sense. I probably don't go there ever if I'm not shed hunting with my dog. And so it opened my eyes to it. And then I go down to some of those slashings and I look at, and I go, I literally stood in one spot and counted over a hundred rubbed popple slashings. And I went, man, this is a net. This is like a breeding nest in here. And I think what was happening was it's so thick. You know, how those covers are, there's just such stem density. So I'm going, well, this is great cover. I don't think deer live in it most time of the year, but I guarantee you, and I've watched bucks walk out of that stuff and, and feed while tending a doe and then turn and walk right back into it. And I've watched them from a distance doing that. And I'm going, I think, I don't think for a second that that buck doesn't bring that doe into that complete tangled mess because it helps, I think, him keep other bucks off of her. Like, I think it's like this nest of breeding. And I think all those rubs are completely a sign of his frustration. Like, he's, I guarantee you, he is, and, and other bucks probably, you know, cruising around this hot doe that's in there and they're so damn mad at each other and upset they're just shredding every tree they see and so i made a mental note of a couple of the spots and i said our major corridor is going into this thing and coming out of this thing on both ends and i don't know that it's not a bad idea for us to have a stand hung on both ends of it you can't hunt inside of it you'd never be able to shoot but if i hunted on both ends of it there's probably about a two-week window that I would have value in sitting there and spending all day yep. because it, you know, just the number of the amount of sign, the volume of sign that was there. Um, but I don't find that if I'm not shed hunting, I don't find that if I'm not with those dogs in there. Well, that's, yeah, that's what I want to talk about is the, we, we kind of talk in this, you know, in, in this whitetail space specifically, we say, you know, Oh, go scout this way, scout this way, get in there, look at this cover tons of ground, and I always think like, man, how many people are actually doing that without like a little more motivation right. and right. taking the dog out? You know, it's kind of like I talk on here all the time about, you know, I go on turkey hunts and I find awesome places to deer hunt. I right. go pheasant hunting and I get a just master's course on how good bucks are at hiding from us. And when they make the decision that they don't want to get seen, they they can be, they can do that living in a county with seven trees and very, very little actual cover and they can disappear on you and they will sit there. I mean, we have times so many times every season where we'll be, we'll be, you know, looking for a rooster we shot or just working the dogs and there'll be a little tiny willow patch or something on the edge of the cattails and a, a buck will scare you as he gets up. He's so close. Yeah. And that's a buck. And a lot of times it's, it's behind us already. So that's a buck that's let, you know, two or three guys go by two dogs go by and has sat so tight that he's busting out the backside after you've already went through. And I just look at that and I go, man, you think about these big woods bucks that you hunt in Northern Wisconsin or somewhere else, or you're down in Louisiana in the swamps, like they have the advantages they have. We can't even hardly comprehend. Yeah. Think about, think about when it's shed season, you know, I, I see a lot of it and we see it too, but, um, you think of deadheads, like how many people find deadheads when they're shed hunting? You know, it's just, there's a lot of deadheads found. And I think what, what's interesting for me, when I shed hunt, I go to places that we've never been before. Like we don't, or not, not, not ever been before, but don't go any other time of year. And I think when we find those deadheads, it's a reminder of like, 
make note of it. You know, why, why do you find so many deadheads in a, a same similar chunk of woods? It seems like you do year in and year out. And they're not necessarily all shot by us even like neighboring properties deer end up in little pockets. And I go, it's really something that if you don't keep it in the back of your mind, or if you do keep it in the back of your mind and it comes to fall and you make a shot on a deer, you know, like there's a chance that maybe if you're finding consistency with that, that's a spot you should look. And I, I, I just think that we don't, we get so uh, myself and the guys I hunt with, we get so touchy about pressure on our farm. And one of the things that, that I think is a real underestimated value of a tracking dog is how efficient they are and how quickly they can get me into an area to find a dead deer and out. And it's even like, I don't even, I don't take dogs on just the tracks that I can't find the deer. I take them on every track, whether it's a good shot or not, because it's an experience builder for them. It's a confidence builder in me. It's an ability for me to truly read their body language on the real thing. And it is the most effective way to get in and out of a piece of property with the least amount of fooling around. So, I mean, I, I, I've shot deer that like were easy recoveries, did not use a dog and it turned into 45 minutes to an hour of stepping on, stepping on, stepping on, stepping on. And all of a sudden there it is. Well, if I had a dog, I'm in and I'm where I, I helped a, a really good friend of mine who is an outfitter and I trained a dog for him and they bring every dog. They bring the dog on every track, the best hits, the worst hits, they bring it on every track. And I can't tell you how efficient we got at getting deer out of the woods. And our, the clients were just amazed because they're just like, they don't even, the clients don't even come with like we, me and my buddy, Mark, who is the son of the owner, we would go in with the dog scout that I trained for him and we would go in and we would be back to the truck dragging in such short time that the, the clients were just like, how did, how did you, in that kind of woods, how did you cover it that quick? And the dog just, I mean, the dog did, the dog did what, what it took me maybe 45 minutes. The dog did it in 30 seconds. Yep. And so that to me is a, a value, especially as a hunter, because it, it allows me to put that much less pressure on prime real estate during a relatively short window of time when we do the majority of our hunting. Well, yeah. And when you're talking about an outfitter running people through, you know, any way you can minimize impact is, yeah, is sure. a good thing. But, but also, uh, you know, if you want to, if you want a recovery dog to develop, you know, that's, that's the ticket. I mean, you've seen, yeah. we've all seen the bird dogs that are weekend warriors that get out, you know, on one trip or two trips a season and they don't really know what they're doing. Right. And, you know, the owners get mad cause there's kind of an ego thing going on, but it's like, well, you don't, you know, if you, if there's something you only do like six days a year, you're not going to be right. good at it. Right. Right. Absolutely. The best, the best pheasant dogs you, you, from a hunting perspective are the ones that are guide, are guide dogs. They, they see so many opportunities. Um, you know, by the time you, when you get these dogs that hunt a couple weekends a year, by the time the weekend's done, they're just starting to figure it out. And then it might be several weeks before they do it again. And then that might be it for the year. And so, um, the more, the more you can do, most definitely, the more, the better they're going to get, the more they're going to, because we can only replicate it so much in training. And I think we do, a, we've, we've come up with ways of doing it pretty effectively. And, but it's, it's like I said before, it's insulting to think that we're truly going to like 
challenge the dog when it comes to that kind of stuff. I think training a dog is the, the one who benefits the most is us in understanding how to figure out when and when and why the dog is doing certain things. And the real thing is where that's where real dogs, that's where real tracking dogs develop is, is going on actual tracks because it takes away our subconscious to cheat for them. Like we don't, we can't help them because we don't know where it is, where if I lay the track, I know where the track is. And it's easy for me to try to make myself feel good by positioning them to always succeed. And, and so if you're going to do it that way, I, I am a big proponent of the idea of have someone else lay the track. I think you should, you should do it that way, make it easy and, and set the dog up to succeed to start out with. But then when it comes to challenging, have someone else put it out and you go track it where you don't necessarily know all the little turns that you put into it. You don't know the little loops or the challenges or the backtracks or the different things that have been thrown at that dog. And it, it really, it forces you to be honest. Um, how, how are you laying a trail to, to train? So I use, I just use a small piece of hide. Um, I make a scent. I call it, I, we call it blood trail, but it's a scent that I make. It's got 13 different, scent elements in it um, that are collected throughout the year. I collect, I have a freezer full of stuff that my wife doesn't go into for bread. Uh, that, that one's off limits. That one's my freezer. So, um, but she, so I, I make a scent. I use a, a real piece of hide. Um, it's very simple. I just don't want to complicate it that much because I think the value that we get out of these, like I said, is, is in reading the dog. So I simulate it with that, that scent that I use, that blood trail scent. And I put it on the hide and the hide acts almost as a sponge. It's a, it's a piece of hide that we flesh and dry. And then we, we offer it as a kit. So we sell like a little drag line and a training booklet and a bottle of scent in this, in this hide. And the hide is an actual deer hide. So we buy deer hides every, every fall and winter. And then we've got some guys with big forearms. The baseball players are the guys who always flesh our hides for us. So we've got some kids that are in high school that work with us and they flesh all these hides. And then we, we cut them into squares, we dry them, and we we package them up. No different than if you were shipping a hide off to be sold, um, you know, for, for as a as a fur buyer. So it will it will stay, but it's not treated. It's not there's no chemicals, there's no tanning. And then what happens is when you take that hide and you rehydrate it, put it in underwater, it'll start to take a softness back to it, a pliability to it. But then all of a sudden it's got moisture. And when it has moisture, it can create bacteria. When the bacteria start, that's where scent comes from. So we take that in conjunction with the scent that I make. And I have had, it's about as easy of a process as I've seen, um, but the, the results are really good. And so I, there are some guys that are buying special tracking shoes. There's some people that are sold on the idea of interdigital glands and they're using hooves. Um, that's a very European way, um, traditional way of doing it. I question the, the need for it um i'm not saying it's wrong but i the amount of effort and work that that takes i don't know that i gain that much from it so i'm a i'm more of a it's more practical for me to do it the way i'm doing it it's yeah. more efficient it's easier for me to store stuff it's faster um so i i do think that the the toughest part about tracking when you when you're, when you're setting up for training tracking dogs is you got to understand that like you don't just go out and do it like it it's a two part process. You have to lay a trail. So there's there's some thought that goes into that. There's some understanding of the 
of the topography and the contours and the the land that you're going to be using. And then you got to, so you got to do that ahead of time. You got to understand the impacts of the, of the elements. And then you got to wait because I think a lot of times we get people that lay a trail and then they go get their dog and they track and they track. And like, that's like kiddie play. I mean, that's just, yeah. that's fine. I, you can do that with young dogs, but at some point you have to start aging. You got to start putting some age to that line. Um, you got to let the line break down. You got to let the scent kind of disperse. Uh, you got you to let things happen naturally like it would when you're actually tracking a deer. And so if you're going to train a dog to track with a, with a line, it could be a two to three day process. And it, you got to remember it. Like I've laid trails out before and forgot about them. I'm like, oh, God, damn, I forgot about that one. So, uh, you know, because life gets busy. So you, you got to understand that, that that's the challenge there. But you can do some stuff that's real simple at night. Like I'll I'll do it tonight, probably about eight forty five, about the last fifteen minutes of light. And I'll take tennis balls and I'll take uh that blood trail scent, which is liquid, and I'll put that on a tennis ball, and then I'll go and I've got relatively short grass and I've got lots of different different lengths of grass, and I'll take tennis rackets and I'll hit tennis balls down the driveway, down the grass runways. I've got all these mowed strips. I'll hit tennis balls and skip them along the ground. You can use chuckets. I like tennis balls, but or tennis rackets. But you just skip that tennis ball along, and then you and you cover you can cover the dog's eyes. You can do all sorts of stuff, and then you can get that dog to the start of the line and tell him find it, find it, find it, and then shut up, and then just let him watch, watch him work. And the, and now all of a sudden I get 10, 15 minutes right before you know. The reason I do it so late is because it's so hot. Yeah. But I get I get some nice. Um, cardio work in forcing the dog to use its nose real big reward at the end tennis balls are like like the big drug for a dog you gotta be careful you know not to use it too much but boy they they just they love them it's just a huge reward so a very simple little track made very fun and i i often i tell people don't set just trail after trail after trail after trail for your dog you'll burn them out like that's the that's the final exam like that if you're a kid that's the big test where if all we did was send kids to school and teachers gave them final exams every day, the kids would burn right out. So how do you get prepared for a final exam? With Lots of little quizzes and lots of little lessons and lots of little things. You work your way up. And then at the end, you get a test. And I think from a tracking standpoint, there's lots of little creative ways to, to, to do lessons and to have quizzes and to do that stuff. And then eventually at the end of the semester, you give them the test and they, you see how they did. I love it, buddy. Uh, where can everybody find uh, all, all your YouTube videos if they're interested in training dogs and, and uh, your your blood trailing, blood tracking, game recovery products, bud? Dog, dog Bone Hunter for everything. So Dog Bone Hunter is our YouTube, our Instagram, Facebook, our podcast. Every, everything is just at Dog Bone Hunter. So um, it's relatively easy. Everybody's using those, obviously those channels to, and we are making a real big effort to try to, I love, I love it because it's such a, such an easy, effective way for us to share information. And I, I just, so we're, we're putting a, a ton of effort into it. Um, and, and hopefully we're really designed or we're, we, we do things to try to help those that are interested in training their own dogs. And, and if that's, if, you know, that's, that's where I feel like our value comes. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on, buddy. I appreciate it as always.
That's it for this episode of Wired to Hunt. I'm your host, Tony Peterson. I should say I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson, but I think you'll hear me around here a little bit more. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you're not subscribed, please subscribe. If you're not listening to My Foundations podcast, uh, listen to that as well. But thank you so much for checking in. We really appreciate it, and we will see you here next week. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.